0: hello tour guide tell all patrons this is candon and today we have a special guest for you we are joined by margaret a colleague of ours with free tours by foot in the united kingdom in honor of women's history month she is going to tell us all about one of the (laughs) many wives of henry VIII. anne of cleves was called the ugly one But was she? How has women's history been shaped by men through the years? Each month, we release a patron special with Becca and Rebecca that only patrons have access to. And in addition, we'll have many episodes from our tour guide colleagues from around the world. We're releasing this episode to everyone, not just patrons, as just a little teaser of what you're missing if you're not a patron. Check out the links in the description to join us as a patron. For as little as $3 a month, you get exclusive content in addition to early access to our regular episodes. So, Margaret, tell us all about Anne of Cleves.
1: Divorced, beheaded died, divorced, beheaded survived. The wives of King Henry VIII have fascinated people for centuries and there's been no shortage of their depictions on stage and screen. Anne Boleyn seems to be the runaway favorite, while Catherine of Aragon receives recognition for her long service and status as Henry's first queen. Henry himself is buried with his third wife, Jane Seymour, and she gave birth to his only legitimate son, so for that she receives some notoriety. Catherine Howard is often reduced to the label of the foolish one, the cheater, or simply just the other one that Henry executed. Catherine Parr is the one who survived, and Anne of Cleves is, by popular consensus, the ugly one. In terms of Google searches related to Henry VIII's wives, one of the most commonly asked questions is, who was the ugliest wife of Henry VIII? Luckily for us, multiple websites exist to inform us of the fact that it was, indeed, Anne of Cleves. Imagine having spent your childhood being a modestly important pawn in a European diplomatic game of chess. Your very existence, a forced marriage, used to bring power and prosperity to your entire country. You bravely leave your home and live abroad, married to a man you've never met, who quickly banishes you from court and publicly alleges that you lied to him about your sexual past. You stay friends with him and act as stepmother to his children. In fact, you're the only stepmother they have whom they all actually care for, so much so that you play prominent roles at their coronation ceremonies, potentially engaging in subterfuge to secretly enable one of them to take their place on the throne. You're described by contemporaries as courteous, gentle, kind to your staff, and you're buried in the church, Westminster Abbey, the only one of Henry's wives afforded this privilege. Not only that... But you're the last of his wives to die, having outlived the last by nine years. You've lived a full life, a full 42 years on earth, seemingly improving the lives of all who knew you. And yet, yet, for centuries to come, people will still learn about you as simply the ugly one. It's a tough pill to swallow, to have your entire existence boiled down to the fact that you're unattractive. And it's tougher still, because it isn't even true. Born in Düsseldorf to John III, Duke of Cleves and Count of Mark, and Maria, Duchess of Eulichburg, in either June or September of 1515, Anne grew up in what is now Germany, but what was then the Duchy of Cleves. Not much is known of Anne's early life, but by the age of eleven, her hand in marriage was already a bargaining chip at her family's disposal. A collapsed engagement to the heir of the Duke of Lorraine, himself only nine, is her first appearance on political history's radar, and it wouldn't be until 1539 that she appeared on Henry's. Henry's heart was said to be truly broken after the death of his third wife, Jane Seymour, in 1537, and he did not immediately seek a replacement. But Henry had dynastic pressures upon him. His father had been considered by some to be a usurper, and Henry had distant family with stronger claims to the throne than his own, who all seemed to have a very nasty habit of plotting to take it away from him. The king needed to secure his Tudor dynasty, and one son, in a time where a baby's survival was not guaranteed, and to a man who had already borne witness to his wife's miscarriages and stillbirths, as well as the deaths of at least two of his previous babies, was not enough. He would need to marry again. To this end, Henry ended up creating his own 16th century tinder. He commissioned his favorite painter, Hans Holbein, to travel to various royal palaces in varying countries to paint the portraits of unmarried noble women, eligible to become the English queen. The portraits were then brought back home for Henry's assessment, to swipe left or right, so to speak. Henry's first choice was Christina of Denmark, the widowed duchess of Milan, who was a mere 16 to Henry's 46. However, Henry had already garnered a reputation for his mistreatment of his wives, and Christina wasn't thrilled with the prospect of marrying the English king. An oft-told tale is that she reportedly stated, quote, if I had two heads, one should be at the king of England's disposal. Christina's mother, as well as her aunt, were both nieces of Henry's first wife, Catherine of Aragon, so you can imagine the attitude toward the king in their household. Yet Henry pursued the marriage for nearly a year, until the English diplomat in Brussels kindly suggested that Henry should, quote, fix his most noble stomach in some such other place. It was Thomas Cromwell, Henry's chief minister, who first suggested Anne of Cleves as a bride for the English king. The King of France, Francis I, and the Holy Roman Emperor, Charles V, had recently made peace, and the threat of a Catholic invasion seemed strong. Anne's father, the Duke of Cleves, was seen as a key ally against this new united force. So, for want of a better term, Henry logged back into Tinder, and Holbein was sent back to Europe to paint two more portraits, perhaps the most infamous Royal Art Commission in British history. I say two portraits because Holbein also painted Anne's younger sister, Amalia. Two birds with one stone, so to speak. After seeing the portraits, Henry chose Anne, although there is debate as to whether this was because he found her the more beautiful or because as the eldest she would have more hereditary rights in her homeland, something that could one day prove useful for future political leverage. Holbein's painting of Anne is eye-catching, although more so for her elaborate dress than her own personage. Her expression is neutral, neither happy or sad, although the ghost of a smile seems to tug at the corners of her mouth. Her hands are clasped demurely in front of her, and she stares straight out from the canvas, her heavy-leaded dark eyes revealing no emotion, which, admittedly, is a little odd for a Holbein piece, as he seems to have preferred painting his sitter's facing slightly to the side. Beauty is objective, of course, but there's nothing about her appearance that one would describe as ugly. Anne is depicted wearing a richly made gown, a regal red that is trimmed with gold, sways of fabric wrapped around her arms. She's sporting a large amount of jewelry, rings and necklaces, along with jewels on her headpiece and the collar of her gown. Some point to this as proof that Anne was unattractive, insisting that Holbein focused on her attire rather than her face in his portrait, a subtle clue that when it came to her face, there wasn't too much to look at. It's also worth remembering that she was wearing clothing that was considered strange or out of fashion in England at the time. However, contemporary records of Anne were full of praise of her beauty. A member of Thomas Cromwell's household, who travelled to Cleves, reported back to the king that, Everyone praises the lady's beauty, both the face and body. One said that she excelled the Duchess of Milan as the golden sun did the silver moon. The French ambassador reported that Anne was, quote, of middling beauty, which seems perhaps more true than comparisons to the sun. Upon seeing the portraits of the sisters, the English ambassador, Nicholas Watton, one of the few English people to have seen Anne in person, declared that the artist, quote, hath expressed their images very lively, or lifelike. Remember, Holbein was chosen by Henry for his skill in accurately representing his subjects. Edward Hall, a contemporary historian, tells us that she had a lovely face, quote, her hair hanging down, which was yellow and long. She was apparelled after the English fashion, with a French hood, which so set forth her beauty and good visage that every creature rejoiced to behold her. So then why has she gone down in history as so scandalously ugly? It would seem she spent the last 500 years paying for Henry's embarrassment and impotence, A role regrettably played by countless women throughout history. Henry and Anne's first meeting, it's fair to say, was a disaster. Anne had arrived in England via Dover and was spending the night in Rochester before making her way to London. When Anne and her ladies were upstairs, looking out the window into the courtyard, a group of men wearing strange disguises burst into the room, shouting in English, which Anne did not yet understand. The women were shocked and perhaps scared. Even more so when one of the men approached Anne, threw his arms around her, and kissed her. He then produced a gift for her, saying that it was from the king who had sent it to her as a New Year's present. Anne tried to remain composed and polite, pushing him gently away and attempting to just go back to looking out the window, unsure how to react to what was happening. Seeing that she would not pay him the attention he was after, the man left the room, only to return a few minutes later without his disguise. "'wearing instead a royal coat of purple velvet, "'revealing himself as no wild intruder, but, in fact, the king. "'At his re-entrance to the room, "'it set all the knights and ladies and fell to their knees "'and gave him reverence. "'What Anne didn't know was that Henry was a keen actor, "'engaging in masks and plays at court, "'and this strange event was him acting out a play of sorts, A chivalric display designed to bring drama and fun to their first meeting this was a known courtly tradition that usually played out well provided both parties understood what was happening the traditional process would be that the man wearing a clever disguise would come upon his love interest unexpectedly perhaps acting uncouth or dim however the bride-to-be would immediately see through this disguise recognize her true love and swoon into the arms of her soon-to-be husband Everybody claps and laughs and lives happily ever after. So imagine Henry's surprise when Anne not only rebuffed his advances, but failed to recognize him and, quote, regarded him little, just wishing to be left alone to look out the window. According to chronicler Charles Risley, it was game over from that very moment. Anne had embarrassed Henry in front of his friends and the new arrivals from the Cleves court, and it could not be true love between them because she didn't recognize him immediately. Henry also valued education and courtly sophistication in his women, which he immediately decided Anne did not have. Henry left in a huff, and he and Anne would officially meet three days later in Blackheath, but the damage was done. Upon leaving the room, Henry told his friends, quote, I see nothing in this woman as men report of her, and damningly, quote, I like her not. However, This was meant to be a political marriage, which meant Henry couldn't just change his mind. Thomas Cromwell, who had suggested the match from the start, was tasked with finding a way out for the king. This couldn't be done, however, before the wedding took place, so Henry and Anne were wed on the 6th of January, 1540, at the Royal Palace of Greenwich. Their wedding night went about as well as you'd imagine. The morning after, Henry confided to Cromwell that the marriage was not consummated, The king said that Anne's breasts were too large, and that they were saggy, and she had a, quote, loose belly, which meant she likely wasn't a true virgin. He further claimed that she had, quote, very evil smells about her. His full report was summed up when he said, quote, I liked her before not well, but now I like her much worse. According to Henry, he did his best for the next four nights to consummate his marriage, but couldn't. And, sorry to be crass, get it up. Innocent Anne, however, seems to have had no idea that anything was missing. Speaking to the Countess of Rutland, she praised Henry as a kind and loving husband. She reported, When he comes to bed, he kisseth me, and he taketh me by the hand, and biddeth me good night, sweetheart, and in the morning kisseth me and biddeth me farewell, darling. As far as Anne knew, this was enough. Lady Rutland replied with the truth, however, stating, Madam, there must be more than this, or it will be ere long before we have a Duke of York. The Duke of York is the title given to the king's second eldest son. Lady Rutland knew that no child would be born from kisses, a fact it's unclear if Anne was aware of. It was also reported that Henry and Anne had nothing in common. She was not versed in English courtly traditions, such as dancing, preferring to practice needlework or play card games. And she had not yet mastered the English language, so there was little to discuss between them. These are things that can change in time, but Henry felt that he didn't have any to waste. Keep in mind that at this point in Henry's life, he was nearly 50 and suffering from gout, A jousting accident in 1536 had left him with a wound on his leg that would not heal. It was constantly and painfully infected. Some members of court reported that people knew when the king was on the way because they could smell his leg before he walked into the room. He was rapidly gaining weight and would be winded by walking upstairs, and he was covered with painful boils. Philippa Gregory put it best when she said, there was indeed a fat, stinking, unsexy person in Henry VIII's bed, but it was not the 24 year old woman. My point being, there's no evidence Henry was up to the task of consummating his marriage. Combine this with two other factors. Firstly, Anne's father had recently become embroiled in a dispute with the Holy Roman Emperor, and Henry's alliance with him looked poised to pull England into a foreign dispute. And secondly, Henry's eye was already on somebody else, his soon-to-be fifth wife, the 17-year-old Catherine Howard. Henry wanted out of his marriage and insisted that Thomas Cromwell find a way. Six months after their marriage, most of which was spent living apart, Anne was ordered to leave court. Shortly thereafter, she was told that her husband wished to annul the marriage. But Henry needed a reason, so he embarked on what was, essentially, a smear campaign— to net himself a legal way out of his nuptial misery. Members of court were officially interviewed, and witness statements were taken, all of which agreed that Anne was not beautiful, that Henry had been lied to, and that she was, quote, nothing so fair as she hath been reported. A member of court recorded, quote, according to several who have seen her close, she does not seem so young as expected, nor so beautiful as everyone affirmed. He kindly added, however, that her ladies-in-waiting were even less attractive, but they all wore clothes so hideous they would have made anybody look ugly. Aside from his charming commentary, note that this man admits to never actually having seen Anne close up, and yet his opinion has been recorded as fact. Henry's accusation that her body could not be that of a virgin was spread around court. Henry's accusation that her body could not be that of a virgin was spread around court, and two physicians were involved in the case just to prove that Henry was capable of marriage consummation, reporting in court that Henry had just recently experienced two, quote, nocturnal pollutions while he was asleep. And, having successfully used his first wife's previous marriage as a solid reason for divorce decades before— Henry and Cromwell brought up Anne's failed previous engagement to the Duke of Lorraine when she was eleven, as a sign of her unsuitability as a marriage partner. Henry successfully managed to argue that Anne was simply too ugly to be married to, and that unfair accusation has stayed with her for centuries. Some have suggested that Henry's opinion on her looks was valid, and perhaps Hans Holbein had just painted a particularly flattering portrait of his future queen— so when Henry saw her in the flesh, he was naturally disappointed. This argument doesn't seem to hold much weight when you consider the consequences of getting on Henry's bad side. Thomas Cromwell, who orchestrated the ill-fated union, didn't last much longer than the marriage itself. When Henry and the French king made a loose alliance, Cromwell's political gambit of marrying Henry to the Duke of Cleves' daughter seemed pointless in retrospect. He was accused of sharing sensitive information about the king to others, and was labeled as a traitor, said to be corrupt, accused of protecting Protestants from heresy, and secretly plotting to marry the king's daughter. It's a long list, but everybody, including Cromwell himself, knew that he was really being punished for the embarrassment of the king's failed marriage. Cromwell was condemned to death without trial, and was beheaded on the 28th of July, 1540, The same day henry married his fifth wife catherine howard but cromwell did not pull off that marriage by himself it would not have happened without the assistance of henry's trusted artist hans holbein hans painted a portrait that henry approved of but during henry's annulment many people went on record to say she looked nothing like the painting if henry believed he'd been tricked into marriage why would holbein not receive any of the blame more to the point Why would Holbein continue to be commissioned by the royal family for years to come? Henry's temper and seemingly easygoing nature when it came to executing people he felt had done him wrong were no secret in England, or the rest of Europe. Why would Hans Holbein risk the king's wrath to paint a portrait that looked nothing like the subject, knowing full well that she would potentially be seen by the king in person? There's no way to prove just how accurate Holbein's portrait was, but his continued employment and lack of any sort of punishment when others were literally losing their heads seems telling. How Anne felt about any of this is a matter of simply guessing. However, when it comes to the fates of Henry's wives, Anne is the clear winner. Instead of living the doomed life as one of Henry's queens, she became his sister. She consented to the annulment immediately and received a generous settlement— including a number of properties, like Heaver Castle and Boleyn's childhood home. Henry wrote to her, stating, quote, You shall find us a perfect friend, content to repute you as our dearest sister. We shall endow you with £4,000 of yearly revenue, signed, your loving brother and friend. Just for reference, that's around £1.6 million pounds a year. Combined with the jewels, plate, and furniture she was permitted to keep, Anne became the richest woman in England. Henry had made Anne not an ex-wife, but a sister, to ensure her position not only at court, but within the country, as she would henceforth be the most important woman in England, save the king's own wife and daughters. Their annulment was not meant to be an embarrassment to her, it seemed, if, of course, you ignore all the accusations of her looks and smell, but it was a way for Henry to avoid remaining married to her without jeopardizing her social standing. She and Henry bizarrely remained on good terms. She even spent the following Christmas at Hampton Court Palace and danced with her replacement, Catherine Howard, her former maid. After Catherine's downfall and execution, the idea of Henry remarrying Anne was floated, but gained little traction. Some see Anne's noted dislike for Henry's next wife, Catherine Parr, as her bridling from the insult of not being taken back. On hearing of Henry's marriage, Anne reportedly stated that, quote, Madame Parr is taking a great burden on herself. She also commented on the fact that she was much more attractive than Catherine. Take note that the person who recorded this, Eustace Chapuis, the Spanish ambassador, did not disagree with her statement. Later in life, Anne would foster relationships with Henry's children from his three previous marriages. She was part of Queen Mary I's coronation procession, but owing to Mary's staunch Catholicism, and quote, "'converted' to the Roman Catholic Church' then withdrew from the public eye. She did, however, remain close with the Princess Elizabeth, so close that she was accused of being involved in Wyatt's Rebellion, a plot to take Mary off the throne and presumably replace her with Elizabeth. This forced her move away from court, and she retired to Chelsea Old Manor, where she died, likely of cancer, on the 16th of July, 1557, at the age of 42, having never remarried. She was buried in Westminster Abbey, on the opposite side of Edward the Confessor's tomb. Her burial place has been described as, quote, somewhat hard to find, but it's fitting for her status. More so when you consider the fact that none of Henry's other queens were buried in such an important building. Anne had never returned to Cleves, and seemed content in her life of luxury and peace. She threw excellent parties, played a mean game of cards, and no one who knew her in her later life seemed to have a negative word to say about her. She outlived all of Henry's wives, and became known as a generous, easy-going woman and a good housekeeper, which was far more of a compliment in the 16th century than you might view it as today. So the divorced, beheaded died— divorced beheaded survive rhyme doesn't truly encapsulate Anne's position. She was never technically divorced, as her marriage was annulled, and Catherine Parr, given the title survived, would die nine full years before Anne, while Anne lived on, in contented good humor and wealth, making her the true survivor of Henry's circus of a marital life. And as for being the ugly one? That also doesn't ring true. The scrutiny and importance placed on a woman's appearance today Is its own disappointing and depressing topic but it's been going on for centuries and i have to point out that anne's life and existence would be no less valid or important had she actually been what we would describe as ugly but to be labeled with the word no less hurtful 500 years ago than it is today is unfair it's also borderline comical when you consider what henry viii looked like in his later years and yet somehow he's escaped the same label he's the one that gave it to her blaming her appearance for his own self-perceived failings as a husband and a man. Anne is sometimes referred to as, quote, the Flanders' mare, said to be a nickname given to her at court. However, this term was first recorded by the Bishop of Salisbury in the 16th century, showing how successful Henry was at convincing people his wife was hideous. They were even coming up with cruel nicknames for her a hundred years after she died. We live in a time now where society's views towards women are being scrutinized, brought to light and hopefully changed. So, too, are our opinions of historical figures. Anne may not be a hugely important historical figure, but her story highlights an experience shared by women throughout history. Her entire life reduced down to her appearance only, without thought or context. But now you know her true story, what was done to her, and how she chose to live her life and to make the best of a bad situation. Sometimes they refer to people as, quote, more than just a pretty face. And now you know that Anne was more than just an ugly one. I'm Margaret Stockton-Davies, tour guide and manager of Free Tours by Foot in the United Kingdom. If you like what you heard, come and join me on a tour. We're currently offering pay-what-you-like tours of London and Birmingham, and now up in the fabulous medieval city of York. So make sure you check out our website and pay us a visit when you're in town.